Amen. Well, it's good to be with you, brothers and sisters. Uh, And like Mark said, we're in Psalm 119. If you weren't here last week or you're just joining us, uh, Psalm 119 is this this prolonged meditation on uh, the Word of God. And it's actually, it's both the longest psalm in the book of Psalms, and it's the longest chapter in the Bible. So it does go on for a bit, but it's, uh, it's so rich. And I hope that as you look through this with us over these next uh, six weeks from now, uh, eight weeks total, that you will spend time in Psalm 119. Just make it the prayer of your heart, morning by morning, before your feet hit the ground. Find a section of this scripture, and hold on to it. Read through it regularly, but make this, make this your prayer. Well, Psalm 119 begins, as Ryan told us last week, with this promise of blessing. Um, talks about the good life, if you will. And I wonder, how do you define the good life? What is the good life? When I say that, what, what comes to mind for you? This is the sort of question that has uh, been sort of a, 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 uh, a definitive issue for uh, societies. Uh, this is what makes one society good and another evil. This is what makes certain societies uh, ripe for human flourishing and others corrosive and destructive. Uh, you can go all the way back to Aristotle and find these deep musings on what the good life is. You know, we often talk about the American dream. I think uh, that's probably the good life as we see it, even if uh, we intentionally try to resist it. (laughs) And you should, because it's not the good life as described in Scripture. The American dream, wealth, security, stability, personal autonomy. No one can tell you what to do. The pursuit of happiness without anyone getting in your way. You know, the traditional view of the good life is very different from the American dream. Most traditionalist societies today outside the West, including for the history of the world, have said the good life is found in, in seeking the good of the community that you live in, building up the, the family, building up the society. And so people actually subsume and subvert their own desires to the society. And so as we look at these other cultures, if you know, uh, if you have friends from these other cultures, sometimes you'll ask them questions about what they do, what their life looks like, what their family looks like, and it's often surprising. In fact, it's often shocking to us to see how, how other people in other cultures assume oftentimes the exact opposite of what we assume the good life is here in the West. Well, Psalm 119 gives a definition of the good life. That's what this psalm is about. So look at the first couple of verses here. Again, Ryan walked us through these, so I won't spend too much time in them. The first two verses of Psalm 119, Blessed are those whose way is blameless, who walk in the law of the Lord. Blessed are those who keep his testimonies, who seek him with their whole heart. This word blessed means happy. Um, the blessed life is the happy life. That's, that's what's being spoken about here. And so as the psalmist introduces us, and, and this, this introduction, actually just these first three verses, are totally different from the rest of the psalm. The rest of the psalm, uh, the psalmist actually turns and addresses the Lord directly. It's only in these first three verses that he talks about him instead of to him. That's an interesting, an interesting little note. Think about that as you're pondering and meditating on this psalm. The first three verses sort of function as a heading, if you will, because here he's telling us what, what he wants to teach us. Blessed are those whose way is blameless. How do, you, how do you achieve this blessed life? By walking in the law of the Lord. Or as he says in the second verse, uh, keeping his testimonies or seeking him with your whole heart. This is how the psalm operates. There's a whole series of synonyms, repetitions throughout as the psalmist sort of turns over an idea again and again and looks at it from multiple perspectives, and he's, he's setting that out there in front of us so that we get a comprehensive picture of what the good life is. The good life is, if I had to sum it up according to this passage here, it's knowing God and following Him. Knowing and following God. 
And the way that we know God is through His Word. So the good life is knowing and following God. And the way that we know who He is and how we interact with Him is because He's spoken to us. When we talk about the Word, we're talking about the Bible as we have it today. We're talking about the written Word that was first spoken through the prophets and then written down in the text that we have here. We'll talk more about that because, of course, they didn't have... Whoever wrote this psalm didn't have the last, three, the last quarter of this, of this book that we have, the New Testament, at least. Perhaps they were writing at an even earlier time, so maybe they only had Genesis through Deuteronomy. We don't know when this psalm was written, but what we do know is, as the psalmist was reflecting on the good life, he said the way to achieve that is by knowing God's Word, by knowing God through His Word. So, that's the good life, and as we read this psalm, what we're going to look at today is, uh, what does the good life look like in hard times? When you're dealing with mistreatment, isolation, despair, sorrow. So we're going to be in the second two stanzas of this psalm. That is verses 17 through 24. That's the first stanza. And then 25 through 32. As we uh, look at, at, these, uh, at these two stanzas today, you'll see that they're, they're unified by this theme of the good life, but in the midst of suffering. So before we get to this psalm, I just want to ask, because if you've read it, if you read it this last week, which I hope you did, uh, as Ryan was encouraging us to do that, one of the things that you see is it's a little... Um, it's a little unique. <laughs> it is repetitive. And so I think we should ask, before we jump in and before I read this to us, how should we read and understand this psalm? How should we read and understand this psalm? Let me give you a simple answer. I think you should understand it like an ongoing conversation. It's an ongoing conversation between the soul and God. It's like a dialogue. Dialogue meaning two partners in conversation between the soul that seeks the Lord, and the Lord speaking back to him. So if you've read it, you know it's not like one long structured argument. You're not reading the letter, a letter from Paul here, for instance, where you move from logical point to logical point. There's a clear flow building through the whole, through the whole, through the whole text. But nor is this entirely arbitrary. As you read this, I think if we read it sensitively, you notice these are not just sort of random thoughts tossed together on a page. Number one, there's obviously been a lot of thought put into kind of a careful crafting of the text here because each one of these stanzas begins with one specific letter. So that's why your, uh, your text has at the, probably in your English translations at the beginning of each eighth verse uh, this word that you don't recognize <laughs> Aleph, Beth, uh, Gimel, Dalit, etc., etc. These are the Hebrew letters that it begins with. And the, the translators are just trying to say to you, look, there's someone put some real effort into this poem to make it an acrostic so that it hangs together each one of these stanzas. And I think as you read it, I hope what you'll see is each stanza does tend to have a unifying theme. There's, there's generally a unifying theme. And so I think in 17 through 24, this first stanza that we're going to look at today, we see the psalmist uh, responding to what the good life is when you're oppressed by others. And then in the second stanza, 25 through 32, what's the good life look like when you are crushed by depression, when you have a despair so thorough that you don't feel like you can get up in the morning? What's the good life look like in these two situations? Those are the themes. We'll, we'll look at those in just a moment. But do realize as you read this, there, there is a, an intentional flow to it. And the reason I think it's like a conversation is hopefully you, you have a good friend like this, a good friend with whom when you get into a prolonged conversation, you have something like this. There's a flow. You can move easily from topic to topic. Uh, one one, one uh, comment makes you think of something entirely different, and you jump to that. But then later in the conversation, you wrap back around to that previous thought, and you pick it up again, you add to it. I think, as you read this, you'll see that that's what's going on here. The soul is in conversation with its beloved, with the Lord. And so the, the conversation, as we study it here, hopefully you'll see a real clear uh, sense of, of 
nearness as there's this flow to it. It's not just random. It's not just arbitrary. Watch for how different verses relate to each other, especially within a specific stanza. And watch uh, for how verses pick up thoughts from previous sections as well. Okay, further, without further ado, let me read Psalm 119, starting in verse 17. Deal bountifully with your servant, that I may live and keep your word. Open my eyes, that I may behold wondrous things out of your law. I am a sojourner on the earth. Hide not your commandments from me. My soul is consumed with longing for your rules at all times. You rebuke the insolent, accursed ones who wander from your commandments. Take away from me scorn and contempt, for I've kept your testimonies. Even though princes sit plotting against me, your servant will meditate on your statutes. Your testimonies are my delight. They are my counselors. My soul clings to the dust. Give me life according to your word. When I told of my ways, you answered me. Teach me your statutes. Make me understand the way of your precepts, and I will meditate on your wondrous works. My soul melts away for sorrow. Strengthen me according to your word. Put false ways far from me and graciously teach me your law. I have chosen the way of faithfulness. I set your rules before me. I cling to your testimonies, O Lord. Let me not be put to shame. I will run in the way of your commandments when you enlarge my heart. One last note before we start here. As we read through this, you've probably noticed there are a whole number of synonyms, a whole bunch of different ways of speaking about God's Word. And so we have, in fact, eight main synonyms repeated through this psalm. Ryan spoke briefly about this last week, so I'll try not to belabor the point. But I think it's worth exploring, at least for a moment, why these eight synonyms are used and and what we should make of them. Because at least half these synonyms, as you see up there, law, statutes, commandments, rules, they, they kind of connote to us, modern, Western readers, just a cold series, kind of a list of things to do. Do this, don't do that. Avoid this, make sure you do that. And while that is, in fact, what they mean in the original, the translators have faithfully passed that on to us. This whole set of eight synonyms together is really meant to be comprehensive. It's not meant to bring to mind in each one of these verses a distinct type so that in each verse you see this repetition, uh, excuse me, you see this specific uh, synonym and you think of that one way that God's word speaks to us. Like when we hear about rules, you only think about those sections where rules come to us. These synonyms really, they work together. And so the point of, these, of this repetition of these different ways of speaking about God's Word is that we think about all of God's Word together, all of the written Word as we receive it. So, uh, in fact, you know, again, if this psalm was written very early and it's written at a time, say, when David uh, is writing it or something like that, he probably had essentially just the, the first five books of our Old Testament, what we call the law or the Torah. But even there, that word Torah, some of you will know that, refers to all five of those books together. And what, what we have in those five books is everything from God's creation of the world, of mankind, through the fall, God's intentional redemption of one people. He sets his love on Abraham and creates a specific nation, all the way up through Moses when God brings the people out of Egypt, and he saves them. And then he does give them specific commandments to structure their society and how they live with one another. Even there, when we see law, like in all of your English translations, when you see the word law, it means, it comes from the Hebrew Torah. And so it means more than just those rules, more than just those specific laws that the society had to obey. 
It refers to, in fact, everything, all that instruction that comes in those first five books. So don't think narrow when you hear rules or commandments. Think broad. Um, Do include the rules and commandments, though. Do include those specific laws. As you read through here and you hear him say something like, your testimonies are my delight. Uh, Don't think, well, you know, the rules don't apply to us anymore because we're Christians living in the New Covenant. Uh, In fact, those rules do have meaning for us, and they do uh, in some way reveal God's wisdom to us. Think of it like this. If you come to my house, we have a rule that you don't wear shoes inside the house. (laughs) Uh, And the reason we don't wear shoes inside the house is because it reveals some value that we have. So you ask, all right, well, what's that value? Well, we like being able to play on the floor. We don't want germs brought in. You may say, well, scientifically, that's silly because they don't live on, you know, plastics and antimicrobial. Fine, fine, fine. We prefer not to have it because it feels unhealthy to us. But rules reveal values. And so also the rules that we find in Scripture reveal values. So, for instance, you read through the Old Testament, you'll come across this rule that uh, every house has to have a parapet. That is one of these kind of medium-height walls uh, around, around the roof. And you ask, like, okay, what does, what does a rule like that reveal? Well, in the ancient Near East, life was done on the roof. Oftentimes, people slept out on the roofs because it's hot. And uh, believe it or not, they didn't have AC. Uh, and so, in the middle of the summer, you want to sleep where it's cool. But guess what? If you've got little kids on the roof... Well, you want to protect them. You don't want them waking up in the middle of the night and and falling off the edge. So the value that we see in a rule like that is God values life, even the lives of little ones. So yes, commandments, rules, law, they do in fact reveal God's values. And uh, I got a couple of passages there. Um, John 15, 25, we, we see Jesus, in fact, uses the word law, kind of like the psalmist does here. In John 15, he's in a dispute uh, with, uh, with, with uh, or he's, he's talking about, um, uh, he's talking about the, uh, the, how the, the Pharisees, the, the religious leaders are against him, John 15, 25, and he says, the word that is written in their law must be fulfilled. They hated me without a cause. That last quote is actually from Psalm 35, And yet, it says the word written in their law. (laughs) It's a little unique. Uh, But this is the way that that, uh, religious people in the Old Covenant and into the New Covenant spoke about God's word. They could say law, and they meant all of the word, all the written word. Something similar happens in 1 Corinthians 14. You can look that up on your own if you want. Here's the point. When we come across these synonyms, these eight synonyms listed here, uh, don't think of each one distinct from the other, think of them all together. Think of them all together. So, uh, the, let, me, let me try and summarize this first uh, stanza that we come across here. The first stanza that I read, 17 through 24. I think the, the point of this stanza is that God's word provides relief to those who are isolated, oppressed, and mistreated. God's word provides relief to those who are isolated, oppressed, and mistreated. We see this theme of isolation come up uh, in this text, specifically in verse uh, 19. Uh, I'm a sojourner on the earth. And then again in verses 22 and 23, he reflects on some sort of conflict, some sort of outside oppression that he's receiving. And so this stanza seeks to answer, what does a good life look like? What does the blessed life look like in the midst of this sort of outside mistreatment, mistreatment from others? And these verses build up to it slowly. Verse 17 uh, begins with a, a request for God to care for him. This verb, deal bountifully, refers to, uh, it's basically saying, hey God, I know you're in control. Please do whatever is necessary to care for me. I know that you have complete sovereignty over the world and over my circumstances. Will you please care for me so that I can live and keep your word? This, uh, this word, keep your word, it refers to not just obedience, but actually like guarding it or holding on to it. So think obedience, but think broader than that as well. The psalmist here says, I want you to care for me, God, 
so that I can continue to, to be near to you through your word. I know I have access to you through your word. Please allow me to keep living so that I can continue to hold on to your word. This is the good life for him, not just trying to avoid death, but really trying to, have, to, to maintain access to God through his word. The next verse, he asks God to open his eyes or uncover his eyes. And he seems to be acknowledging that he has a natural blindness, right? (laughs) If you have to have your eyes opened, something's going on there. You are blind. And he says, I realize in myself, I can't see these, these realities that are in your word. Open my eyes that I may behold wondrous things out of your law. In your Torah, in your instruction, your teaching, there are things that are great. I know they're there. It's like a treasure box that's locked to me, though, until you open it for me, Lord. But the problem is not with, with the treasure box itself. The problem is with me, the one who wants to have access to it. So open my eyes so that I can access those wondrous things that are there. The psalmist's admission reminds us that we have a natural blindness, We're born not ready to come to God on our own, but resisting him and walking away from him. And again, this is is part of the, the mysteries that are unlocked in the Torah, in the law itself. We read all the way at the beginning the the defining story about humanity given in Genesis 2 and 3. God made us good but we turned away from him. He made us to be in relationship with him, to have this sort of kind of conversation between the soul and God, but no one's able to access it because we have this inborn blindness. The box is locked. You can't access it unless someone helps you get in from the outside. And so the psalmist asks, open my eyes. I know there's good things there, but I can't have them without your help. Please give this to me. Now, this writer is, of course, a follower of God, so he's already had that experience, and yet he recognizes about himself, I still need your help. I still need your help to see what's there in your word. I know there are great things, and I still feel myself cut off from them oftentimes. Open my eyes, Lord, that I would see wonderful things in your word. And so he asks. And in verse 19, he makes a similar request. Uh, perhaps a little bit more striking, uh, the second half of that verse, he says, don't hide your commandments from me. I wonder if he stumbled over that when we first read it. Does God hide his commandments? I think the point here is, is a mirror request of what we see in that open my eyes. I know I'm cut off from them, Lord. I know I'm, I'm cut off from the good life by myself. Will you please lead me into it? And don't leave me where I am. By myself, I would continue in selfishness. And the worst part about it, the worst part about it is that you think you're living the good life without him. (laughs) Calvin said something like, uh, the the good life according to the world is, uh, is that you always walk in the same direction away from the Lord. And the further you get, the better you think your life is. The further you get from the Lord, the better you think your life is until he does this miracle, until he opens your eyes, gives you access to himself. And so the psalmist cries out here again, I know you, Lord, but don't hold yourself back from me. Don't hide your commandments from me. In verse 20, he says, and this is a pretty surprising verse, he says that his soul is consumed with longing. Some of your translations uh, have a little bit more literal. It says, Uh, My soul is crushed with longing. The word just means crushed. Uh, Jeremiah uses it to describe how his teeth are ground down, crushed by like having gravel in his mouth. My soul is, is crushed with longing for your word, for your rules at all times. It seems that the psalmist is overwhelmed here. So I like the word consumed, actually, because I think it, it gives us this sense of what's going on here. Yeah, I am crushed, but not in the sense of, of burdened in a negative way. I'm, I'm overtaken. <laughs> I, am, I am consumed with a desire for your word. I imagine we've all felt this kind of longing. Maybe you've wanted someone's affection. 
a parent who didn't love you, someone of the opposite sex who you were interested in, a child who has betrayed you and left the family, this sense of longing, oh, that I could have their affection for me. It's something like that. My soul is consumed with longing, not just for this, 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 this love returned to me from someone else, but with your love, O oh Lord. I have such a desire that I feel overwhelmed by it at all times, he says. The desire for God's judgments is so overwhelming that the psalmist feels consumed by it. And this longing here is a, it's a positive word. It's not a negative word. That's what helps us make sense of this. Not that he's, he's burdened in terms of being crushed, but he's consumed in terms of hoping for it. So he tells us in verse 19 that he's, he feels dislocated. I'm a sojourner in this land, he said. He feels like an alien. This word sojourner means somebody who is, uh, they're in a foreign land. You're surrounded by people whose language you don't speak. You have no friends around you. That's the psalmist's sense. I feel like a stranger among these people. I don't have anybody close to me. And yet, in this place, my soul is consumed with longing for your judgments at all times. And so he finds himself, on the one hand, lonely and isolated, and on the other hand, deeply satisfied, so satisfied that he uses this somewhat violent image. <laughs> My soul is crushed with longing for your judgments. So I think this, in fact, this sort of um, paradox sets up for us the answer to what the good life looks like when we're in the midst of isolation and oppression. It's not one or the other. It's not some easy answer as if in finding your hope in God's word, suddenly all your problems evaporate. That's the prosperity gospel. That's the American dream, in fact. The American dream is everything will be good, everything will be easy, there'll be total security, I'll never have a problem again. But that's not what the scripture lays out for us. In fact, Jesus said, hey, if you follow me, you're going to have constant trouble. <laughs> Your life will be trouble if you follow me. If you want to follow me, this is the metaphor, he said, I'm, I'm going to give you. You have to take up an instrument of execution. You have to walk your way towards a place where people are crucified. Take up your cross and follow me. And yet, he said, in this world you'll have trouble, but take heart, because I've overcome the world. I think that's, I think that's what we, we begin to see in this psalm. We do experience trouble in this world. And the solution is not that we're taken out of the world, that all our problems evaporate, the Christian life often brings with it extra suffering when we follow Jesus. But it's in the midst of that, specifically from God's word, that we find our deepest satisfactions met. Isolation, mistreatment, oppression, and at the same time, an overwhelming longing for God's word. I think this verse really helps uh, kind of hopefully explain our sermon series title as well. We're calling this Developing an Appetite for God's Word. Developing an Appetite for God's Word. I hope that as you read these passages, you will pray this for yourself and for your brothers and sisters here. I've been doing that this week, this specific verse. Oh, Lord, give us this longing that would consume us for your word, for your judgments, for your instruction. We want to be consumed because otherwise you're going to be consumed by something else. Your life will either be defined by the absence of God's word or the application of it. Your life will either be defined by the absence of God's word or the application of it. Overwhelmed by sorrows and yet... God's word seems to push them to the periphery of the psalmist's experience so he can both confess his troubles and at the same time say, yet I have something deeper, something greater in the midst of it. In verses 21 and 22, uh, 
he specifically identifies those whom God will rebuke. And I think the psalmist is telling us who his enemies are here. Where's this trouble coming from? It's coming from these people around him who reject God's commandments, people who stray from them, he says. This is interesting because I don't think we should read this as, uh, you know, I'm surrounded by a bunch of criminals, <laughs> by these people who are, who are really like far down the road of personal corruption. He's just saying they do whatever they want. They follow their own reason. Whenever a tough decision comes up to them, they don't bother to say, what would God want me to do? They just say, what makes sense for me right now in this moment? And this is the real challenge here. This is the real challenge. Again, either the absence of God's word defines your life or the the intentional pursuit of it, the application of it to your life. These kind of people, he says, God will rebuke people who wander from his commandments. And then he tells us in verse 22, he, he, he makes this request to the Lord, please take away this scorn that I'm experiencing. I follow your commandments, and so I'm subject to insults, basically. Because these people look at God's word and say, that's, that's outdated. <laughs> that's culturally uh, entrapped. That comes from some different place in time, and it's totally out of step with reality. You've got to get rid of that stuff, man. And he says, I'm, I'm going to continue walking that path, even though it brings on me this shame. But Lord, please take this scorn from me. Verses 23 and 24, the last two verses in this stanza, uh, give the psalmist's response to this mistreatment. He talks about princes plotting against him. This word princes just means like leaders. Uh, the hip new word is influencers. There are people around him who have some sort of reach, and they are conspiring against him. I don't know, talking trash on social media. Who knows what they're doing? But he says he's he's not troubled by them. That's what's so amazing. He knows that this is going on out there. These influencers, these leaders are conspiring against him. But then do you see what he says in the second half of 23? Your servant will meditate on your statutes. If ever there was a time to be anxious worried. It's when you know someone is trying to undermine your position. Maybe they want to destroy your reputation in the group of friends that you have. Maybe they're actually, you know, trying to to, uh, make you look bad in such a way in your workplace that you lose your job. These people are working against him. This is a time to to be nervous, right? To strategize. He says, I'm going the opposite direction. (laughs) This is where I meditate. I meditate on your word, O oh Lord. And this word meditate, uh, it's like murmuring. He's saying, I say your word out loud. I speak it. I'm not, just, I'm not just kind of thinking about vague concepts in my heart. I repeat it aloud. I have your, I have your laws, your commandments, your, your promises so, so near to my heart that sometimes I look up and I'm like, oh, was I talking out loud? <laughs> That's what it means to meditate on God's word, to be so narrowly focused on it that you're freed from this anxiety of the troubles around you. The psalmist is so deep in thought about God's word that he kind of loses himself in it. He, he does this aloud. And then he says, that last verse there, 24, your testimonies are my delight. They're my counselors. Again, this brings to mind this issue of loneliness, I'm like a foreigner. I'm like a stranger in a foreign land. I have no friends, Lord. (laughs) And yet your your testimonies are my counselors. I have friends all around me. They, They are like advisors to me, encouraging me in the midst of these challenges, giving me advice on what my response should be like. I have counselors. And so both realities exist. There is loneliness. There is isolation. And yet there's also this surrounding help from God's Word that God's Word provides for him. This is the way forward for us when we are lonely and mistreated by others. Meditate on God's Word. Make it your closest counselor. Before your feet hit the ground in the morning, before you have a second thought about how you should respond to someone, when your heart is overwhelmed with sorrow, loneliness, the place you should turn instinctually is to God's word. This is the solution to our problems. 
Give yourself over to a longing for it and pray with the psalmist. May my soul be consumed with longing for your judgments at all times. That's what we see in the first stanza. The good life in the midst of mistreatment and oppression. And in the second stanza, how God's word gives us life when we are crushed by despair. Look at that opening verse there, verse 25 of that second stanza. My soul clings to the dust. Give me life according to your word. Uh, The image there, my soul clings to the dust, is like somebody who's been knocked down and can't stand up again. And he goes on to tell us in, in verse 28 with very similar language, my soul melts away for sorrow. I think that's kind of the unifying theme here. And so when we, when we read that together with that first verse, my soul clings to the dust. I'm like someone who's been knocked down and can't even stand up again. I think the image we get is of this sort of crushing despair that we often call depression. Like I can't get out of bed in the morning sometimes. <laughs> there are times where I don't feel like I can do anything. I'm so overwhelmed with sorrow. My soul clings to the dust. But then the response, give me life according to your word. In the midst of this despair, the psalmist finds hope in God's word. He feels so, so knocked down that it's as if he's too heavy to get up again. And yet, this despair does not own him. It doesn't rule him. He knows the way out. This reminds me of Paul's words in 2 Corinthians 4. He talks about being crushed but not overwhelmed. (laughs) Uh, He says that he is uh, in despair, and yet uh, he's not not totally consumed by it. Uh, If you want to turn with me to 2 Corinthians chapter 4, Paul describes this reality in his life, and I think it comes closer to explaining this passage than, uh, than we have in, than I can do. 2 Corinthians 4, Paul's talking about some sort of um, this, this sorrow that he has. The churches that he's planted have been overtaken by false teachers. Many people are turning away from Jesus. Paul says, I don't really care about myself, but I do care that you follow Jesus. And as much as I'm a representative of Jesus and these other teachers are teaching you a false way, it does matter whether you listen to what I say or not. But he really, he downplays himself. He says, I'm not too concerned about the suffering that I go through. 2 Corinthians 4, starting in verse 7, we have, speaking about himself, we have this treasure, that is the gospel, in jars of clay. He talks about kind of his own life, his own body as this fragile, easily destroyed uh, clay pot. We have this treasure in jars of clay to show that the surpassing power belongs to God and not to us. We are afflicted in, in every way, but not crushed, perplexed, but not driven to despair, persecuted, but not forsaken, struck down, but not destroyed, always carrying in the body the death of Jesus so that the life of Jesus may also be manifested in our bodies. For we who live are always being given over to death for Jesus' sake so that the life of Jesus may also be manifested in our mortal flesh. That, that list is pretty, pretty striking there. We are afflicted in every way. I mean, think of a time in your life where it just seems like everything is going wrong. We are afflicted in every way, but not crushed. In the midst of that sort of despair, he doesn't give himself over to it. He doesn't deny it either. This isn't some sort of kind of like rise above, pretend like it doesn't matter, free yourself from earthly things. Not at all. Paul recognizes the reality of the sufferings around him. And yet, in the midst of his despair, he's not overrun by it. I think that's what we see here. My soul clings to the dust. Give me life according to your word. And in verses 26 through really the end of, uh, the end of this, um, this passage here, we see this, this same thing. 
verse 26, when I told of my ways, you answered me. Teach me your statutes. We're going to come back to this in a minute, but the essence of it is this. I turn to you, God. When I'm troubled, I turn to you, and you speak to me. How does God speak to him? He says, teach me your statutes. It's through these, it's, it's through these commandments, the rules, the instruction, the teaching, the promises. It's through your word. He says uh, again in, in 28, my soul melts away for sorrow. Uh, strengthen me according to your word. This phrase melts away. It's like a really hard one to translate. It's like my soul actually disintegrates as it weeps. It's like I don't exist anymore. And yet, I'm asking you for strength according to your word. Those two verses, 28 and 25, are, are very similar, and I think they form sort of the basis for this, uh, for this stanza. This sorrow feels like it's overwhelming him. It leaves him in a place of despair. He doesn't feel like he can go on, yet he knows where to turn to God's word. And then he, this is interesting, and this is something we see throughout the whole psalm. He seeks personal purity. Put false ways far from me, he says. Verse 29, put false ways far from me and graciously teach me your law. I've chosen the way of faithfulness. I set your rules before me. I'm thinking about your commandments, Lord. I want to know what you want me to do, and I want to do it. In the midst of his sorrow, it's not just sort of vague generalizations, the concept, well, God's word is out there. It's specific passages of Scripture that he sets in front of himself. I want, to, I want to think on your laws, and I want personal purity. I want to follow you, Lord. Um, I think what we see here is that the psalmist, very similar to what we saw in the first stanza, the psalmist finds relief in the midst of significant despair by turning to specific passages in God's Word. How does God's word provide this relief that he's talking about? How does it give life? It's because it gives access to him. I don't know if you've noticed this as we're reading through here. In almost every occurrence of the word, of those eight synonyms, law, statutes, etc., you have attached to it the word your, your law. Give me life according to your commandments. Your testimonies are my delight. The reason God's word gives life is because it's God's word, <laughs> because it gives us access to him. And so in the same way, uh, when, you, when you read a book, you have access to that author. When you read these, test, uh, these, these laws, if you look at a series of laws, you're learning about the values of that culture. When, you, when someone gives you a promise, you have access to that person's faithfulness, good or bad whether they're a faithful person or not. The reason the psalmist says, I want your law, is because it's not enough to him just to have laws. <laughs> he doesn't care about commandments in general. He doesn't just, you know, hey, give me lists of things to do. Not at all. I want you, Lord, and I find you in your word. You have revealed yourself specifically through the word. So how does God's word pro provide relief and give life? Because it is God's word. So he says, teach me your word. And in verses uh, 26 and 29, and he says in verse 27, give me understanding or make me understand. He uses this language that we're accustomed to using for sort of like academic language, school language. And if you read it like that, you just miss the whole point. You just miss the whole point. This is not the pursuit of some scholar looking for a series of facts. Hey, give me interesting things. I just, I just kind of want more details. I just, I just want a bunch of data. Not at all. The psalmist wants to know these things. Yes, yeah, specific data and specific evidence because they give him access to God. This is not the study of, of some detached scholar. This is the study of a follower, the study of a disciple. And so, as you read this and you come across those words, teaching and learning language is peppered throughout this whole psalm. Think of it like this. Teach me your word, O Lord, because that's how I know you. This is how you've revealed yourself. And I want to learn your word, not because I'm just like super into, you know, memorizing passages or something like that, but because I know that in these specific passages, I have you speaking to me. 
And that's really the third point here. I, I just want to narrowly focus on this verse 26. God's word brings us into conversation with him. God's word brings us into conversation with him. Look at that verse 26. When I told of my ways, you answered me. That's a, that's a little that's a little different than the rest of this because what we see here is we see that dialogue, the two-way communication explicitly stated. I'm not just coming to receive. This isn't just some kind of one-way street, and I'm, man, I hope God's out there. I hope he's listening, but, you know, he's giving me a bunch of stuff, and so I'm just going to keep taking it in. No, 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 not at all. When I told of my ways, you answered me. Teach me your statutes. I think the point here is I come to you with specific problems, Lord, and when I come to you with those problems, I find specific answers, answers that are targeted to me in my own need, In my hour of trouble, I come to you. As we look at these two passages, I feel beat down. I feel totally left left alone, totally isolated. And in these times, when I come to you and share my heart, when I open my heart up to you, I find that you actually respond to me specifically. And so he says, teach me your statutes. I want more of it. It's in your written word that I find your answers to me specifically. It is a personal engagement, a personal conversation. Let me close with this one story. I love Francis Schaeffer. Died in about 1984. He lived through kind of the middle of the last century and was uh, a, a, a writer, a teacher, um, a pastor for a time. Francis Schaeffer was involved in a little denomination that went through a series of splits uh, because this denomination was seeking increasing purity. So they see some of the leadership kind of going astray. They feel like that's not faithful. And because they wanted to be pure, they divide from them. And then it happens again. They divide again because even within that smaller denomination, there are still these arguments that bubble up, and it feels like I couldn't possibly be with those people. We need even greater purity. And Schaefer comes to this point um, as a young man, uh, mid-20s, 30s, something like that, after having become sort of a leader in this denomination. He goes through seminary, he's studying God's Word, and he, he, he has like a crisis of faith. He's reading his Bible, and he says, I see here a demand for purity, but I also see a reality of love that's not at work in our denomination. <laughs> he's looking around at this movement that he's a part of, He said, I don't see love in these people around me. We're like torn up with division and fighting. And he's he's very honest. He says, it's not just just those people out there. It's me, myself. I don't sense the power and enjoyment of the Lord. Those are his words for it. I, I don't find the power and enjoyment of the Lord. So he goes back to Scripture. He actually, I mean, his wife writes really uh, movingly about this period. She, they're in, uh, he, they live in this, like, uh, farm area. So he's in, he's in this barn next door. There's a hay mow. She could see him through this little door, and she says he's just pacing uh, every day for weeks, for months. He's rethinking everything. He said, I had to go back to the basics and rethink everything from the beginning. Is this true? Like, is the Bible real? Does God really work amongst us? Or is this just totally fairy tales, because I'm not seeing the reality of it in my life, he says. I seek purity, and I have no power, no love, no enjoyment. And what he found was, it's actually, it's not enough just to seek purity. It's not enough just to seek obedience apart from knowing the Lord yourself. And so he says the secret of power and enjoyment of the Lord is it's loving God. It's in loving God. And I think that's what we find here in this passage. What we find is not, you must be good enough, and then I'll bring you into my counsels. That's not, that's not the point of this passage and of this text. The secret of power and enjoyment of the Lord is that he welcomes us to him when we cry out to him. That's, that's what's going on here. When I told of my ways, you answered me. God responds to us, not as perfect people, not as people who have already obeyed, not because we're so pure. We first must know God. We have to have this spiritual reality in our lives. And ultimately, and Ryan talked about this last week, the way that the Word of God transforms us is not just letters 
and phrases and sentences is because the Word of God is Jesus. Jesus is God's final and perfect Word spoken to us. The beginning of the Gospel of John is one of these rich passages that even if you haven't been around the church very long, you probably know. In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was God, and the Word was with God. He was in the beginning with God. All things were made through Him, and without Him was not anything made that was made. In Him was life. And on and on He goes. The Word became flesh and dwelt among us. The Word is not just some kind of abstract concept. The Word is ultimately God's personal reaching out to us, both in the written text and ultimately in His Son, Jesus. Seeking personal purity is not enough. It won't get you there. You must have the love of God. And the beautiful point of this passage, Psalm 119, is God gives that to us freely. We cry out to Him. We cry out to Him. Open my eyes that I may see wonderful things in your word. I'm blind. I can't access you. Please give yourself to me freely. And he does that in his son, Jesus. Jesus became flesh. The word became flesh. He who was God came into our reality so that we would have access to him. He gives himself to us freely so that then we can turn around and seek that purity. We can experience power and enjoyment in the Lord. We can have these realities that we talk about here. My soul's consumed with longing for your, for your judgments at all times because God first gives himself to us in Jesus. If you're not a Christian, this is an invitation. Please come talk to me. Come talk to some of the folks that will be up here afterwards. We would love to converse with you. Just answer your questions. Begin to work through this. Talk to somebody who's sitting right next to you. And if you are a believer... Brothers and sisters, marvel. Don't grow cold in your love for the Word, but grow in your love for the Word through Jesus. Through Jesus and through His written testimony in Scripture, we have access to God. Let me pray for us. Oh, Father, we do need You, and we find ourselves oftentimes estranged, isolated, feeling lonely, feeling beat down like we can't even lift our heads out of the dust. We're in despair. And so we ask, Lord, give us life according to your word. According to your word, Jesus, and according to your word as it is spoken, the living word spoken in the Bible. We pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen.